What an amazing story to be able to start uh, the day together as we dive into God's word about how God changes lives. Uh, usually when you preach a message, you try to uh, come up with something that is going to draw people in and be intriguing, but there's nothing I could come up with that's going to be able to top that. So we're just going to start with that and just say, thank you, Jesus, that you save and change people from all different kinds of backgrounds, places, religions, and you draw them to yourself. That's incredibly encouraging this morning. Um, I do want to, to say this, and I, I want to pray as we get into it, but as we start this new series about being changed, my hope is this, is that we would allow God's word to be the thing that really speaks to us and really say, God, where can I find myself in your story that you are crafting um, throughout creation right now as you are drawing people to yourself? Um, I really want to hear you, Lord. And so I'm going to pray, but I'm going to ask you as you're sitting at home today, and, and we just want to honor you for that as you are coming and being a part of what's going on here at First Colleyville, and we just want to ask you to pray for yourself and say, God, I need you to speak to me. I need you to come and show me how you want me to be changed and how you do change and that there's hope for me and for my life. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go ahead and jump straight into the word this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the fact that uh, you see us exactly how we are you know all our sin, you know all our struggle, you know all the things that we think about and that we run to and, and everything about us beyond even what we know about ourselves and yet you still love us and you still want to see us become your children, um, whatever it takes. And so this morning, God, I just pray that you would speak to your creation, speak to your people that you love dearly and desperately and let them see your goodness and your faithfulness and every single word that we read today. God, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you got your Bible, I want you to go ahead and open it up, whether it's on your phone or your computer or whatever it might be. And we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. And, and really, we're going to be looking at a story that is my, probably one of my favorite stories, if not my favorite story, that Jesus tells um, in the Gospels. It's an incredible story uh, that he does uh, relay to a, a group of Jewish people that are there listening to him, and it's pretty awesome. And it might be something that you've heard before growing up, or it might be the very first time. And either way, I hope it will be a blessing to you today. So we're going to look at verses um, 11 through 32. So let's go ahead. We're just going to read through the whole story, and I'm going to kind of commentate as we go along, and then hopefully bring some encouragement to you as we do that. So Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And here's what the word of the Lord says. And this is Jesus speaking. And he says, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And I want to pause right there because this is quite an audacious moment as Jesus starts this story amongst Jewish um, contexts where they really understand inheritance and it's a big deal in first century Jewish culture. And this younger son, who would have only been able to be responsible for a third of, of the inheritance that his father would have for him, he comes to his dad and he says, hey, give it to me right now. Now, it doesn't take much of a genius to understand inheritance happens when people pass away. And so what's happening here is that as this young man comes to his father, he's basically saying, Father, I care more about what you provide for me, your riches, your property, the, the positions that I could get and the influence that I can come upon because of this wealth 
more than I care about my relationship with you. In fact, if it means you being dead, I would prefer that if I can get my inheritance right now. This would have been a crazy story that Jesus just starts with amongst this group. And oddly enough, we see here that the father, instead of lashing out at his son and, and disciplining him, maybe even striking him with blows, which could have been a common thing, he instead just goes and he works hard to try to find a way to sell a third of his property amongst the people in his community and, and passerbyers or whatever he has to do, and then he gives him this inheritance. Can you just imagine the shame that he must have felt as he did this? And then verse 13 says this, it says, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed, in verse 16, with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. So what's going on here is just a couple days after he gets this inheritance and he has this brash moment with his father, he, he goes to this faraway country. In my mind, I'm like thinking, okay, like kid from Iowa, you know, gets his inheritance, moves to Vegas, is just going to live the high life, right? Live that party life and, and just go crazy. And that's what he does. And he, and he lives there in this place, in this faraway country, he spends every single dime that his father had been saving up and working hard to be able to provide for him as an inheritance, and he just wastes it all, every single dime. That's hard to imagine, but he finds a way. And then, of course, what happens? The other shoe drops. Life hits, crisis strikes, and this young man finds himself in a severe famine, and it's so bad that he's hiring himself out to a, a, a citizen of that country, and he's making so little money that he's He's jealous of the food that the pigs are eating. And because he's in a faraway place and probably in a very pagan culture would have been in their time, that's what they would have at least been thinking, nobody even cares about his suffering. Nobody does anything for him. Just imagine what that must have felt like. And then verse 17 says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And so the son here, he has this epiphany. And, and it's not shocking when you're down low in the muck, literally in a pig pen, eating, wishing you could eat the, the food that the, the pigs are eating, you have this realization, oh my gosh, I've messed up royally. Is it not better to just be an employee of my father than to be where I am, free, on my own, doing as I wish? And so he goes, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make the long trip home and I'm going to tell my dad, I don't even need to be a son. I don't have to be a part of the family. Please just hire me and treat me like one of your employees. I'm not worthy. I understand that. And then in verse 20, it says that he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. This is amazing. And put it on him and and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Verse 23, and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for my son was dead and is alive again. And he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So this young man, he, he has this moment. He's, he's thinking through the stuff that he's going to do. He has all these plans. Okay, I'm going to go back home and I'm going to have this speech. And he's probably practicing it on his way. Remember, he's in a faraway country. So it was a long journey, but he was committed to go back home no matter what it took. And when he's afar off, we see that his father is watching. He's waiting for him. I can just imagine seeing him there sitting on his front porch every day, day after day, just praying and just waiting to see whether or not his son might come back home. And then one day it happens. He sees him off in a distance. And instead of sitting there and sending out one of his workers and telling him, hey, you don't belong here. You're not welcome here anymore. I already gave you enough. You can't stay. It's not what he does. Instead, what does he do? He gets up and he runs. And you have to understand, this, this, did not, this was not a thing. Children in Jewish culture ran. Uh, teenagers ran. Maybe even women would run on occasion. But grown, respectable Jewish men would never run. And yet, what does he do? He casts all that aside and he doesn't care because he, over the joy and the compassion that he feels over his lost and wayward son who has come home. And he runs to him. And he hugs him. And he kisses him and he goes and he tells his servants, you know what you need to do? You need to go get a ring. You, know, go, you need to, get to put a robe on him. You need to clean. He's, oh, he stinks. We need, probably need to get a bath, right? Put some shoes on him. And we're going to throw the biggest party that you can imagine as we celebrate the fact that my son has come home. And I love it because his son, he begins to get into this speech and his father just cuts him off. He gets into this, I'm not worthy to be your son statement. And it's like, it doesn't matter. You're here, you've returned, and that's all that I care about. And verse 25 says this. It says, now his older son was in the field. And as he came and he drew near to the house, he heard music and he heard dancing. And he called one of the servants and he asked what these things meant. What is going on? I didn't get an invitation to this party. In verse 27, he said to him, your brother's Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So the older brother, the brother who's who stayed home, who's worked hard, who's been the good, obedient son, who who's going to get the double portion of, of inheritance than his little brother, he he's coming home after working out in the field and he starts to hear a ruckus. He hears Here's music, and then here's dancing. He's like, what is going on? What, who, what, I, I don't remember there being a party that was going to be thrown. What's the, the big deal? And he finds out his little brother's come home, and that his dad has killed a fattened calf, which you have to understand in Jewish culture, especially in this time, they didn't eat meat all the time. And they especially would not be killing fattened calves, except for on a very rare, special occasion. And that's exactly what's going on. And when his older brother finds out that it's all because the younger brother has come home, he's furious and he refuses to be a part. It says that his father came out and he entreated him. 
He pleads with him. He's begging his son to come in, to, be a, to partake in the party. But he answered his father and he says, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. He says, Look, not father. He doesn't address his father with respect. There is this, this arrogance. There is this disrespectful tone about how he speaks to his father in this moment. He says, all these years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command and yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. He can't believe what is happening before his eyes. And then in verse 30 he says, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? See, the older brother had no space in his brain for the fact that there would be this kind of love and grace and compassion for his younger brother after he had put shame on his father and shame on their family and had wasted so much of the inheritance on prostitutes and, and reckless living. He has no space in his heart and in his mind that there could possibly ever be reconciliation, especially when he thinks about the fact that his father has never thrown him anything close to this kind of party. So he's not coming in. But then verse 31 says this. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. Why? For this is your brother. And he was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father again tries to, to plead with him, to help him to see, to get past the hardness of his heart that he's, that he's had in this moment towards the father and towards his brother over the fact that he has come home and he's been welcomed, not chastised, not sent out. But there's been a party that's been thrown in his name and he is jealous over this kind of pouring out of favor. And you know, this story is really a scandalous one. Because when you understand the fact that Jesus is speaking to a bunch of Jews, and he's speaking to two specific groups of Jews at this time. On, on one, one group here, we have uh, just a few verses. The first, first 10 verses of Luke chapter 15, you see that there are tax collectors and irreligious Jews that Jesus is talking to. And they're, because they were, they're drawn to Jesus. That's what those verses says, that they were just being drawn to him, that there was something about Jesus, that they lost people that were not religious and, and lost people that were like the worst of the worst if you were a Jew. I mean, tax collectors, these guys worked for the Romans. They were kind of like the Jewish mafia shaking down businesses for taxes and then whatever they could get over and above what the Romans required, they could keep for themselves. So they got rich off their own Jewish brothers and sisters. They were hated and yet they were drawn to Jesus and Jesus welcomed them. And he, that's one of the groups that Jesus here, that he's talking to. And then you have this other group of Pharisees and scribes. And these would have been uh, the people that were very religious. They were the leaders. They were the, the people that in their culture, they, people looked up to and were trying to emulate. I mean, these were the rule keepers. I mean, they had rules on top of rules. They took the Bible and added a whole bunch, hundreds of new ones just to show, hey, this is how serious we are about trusting and following after the Lord. And so Jesus is telling this story of this scandalous grace amongst these two people. And what's amazing is as they are listening, it wouldn't have taken them very long to realize which son each camp belonged in. 
you see the tax collectors and the irreligious Jews, they were clearly the younger brother in the story that Jesus was talking about, how they just, they were living life and doing this reckless kind of living that would have never made sense for them to have any kind of favor with God and with the Father. And yet, that's where they find themselves. And then the other group, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious elite, the leaders, the, the rule keepers, they were clearly the older brother in this story. And I love I love a quote from Tim Keller. At the end, there's a cliffhanger. It, it doesn't resolve in the sense that you would think it would. You'd think that the father goes out to the older son and the older son would, would realize the errors of his ways just like the younger son did and come in and celebrate and say, I'm sorry, you're right, father. But that's not what happens. He stays there, lost. And I love what Tim Keller says. He says, he says that the lover of prostitutes is saved and the man of moral rectitude is lost in this story, that would have been completely eye-opening, uh, shocking, maybe, you know, like make somebody that's listening like, this can't be right. There's no way that this is how this story is supposed to go. If anyone is supposed to be saved, it's the older brother that, that stayed and kept the, followed the rules and did all the things. And if anyone was not supposed to be let back in, it's the younger brother. And then these guys over here, the tax collectors and sinners are probably thinking to themselves, oh my gosh, what kind of love of a father is this that even someone like me who is, who is hated and, and, and taken advantage of, of my brothers and sisters be welcomed in? That's exactly what is happening here. And so there's three things that I kind of want to notice from this story really quickly that I think are fascinating, but I think are also really important for us to take because this story is just as much for us as it was for the listeners of Jesus' day. And the first is this, number one, is that we are all lost. Some in our recklessness and some in our self-righteousness. When we read this story, we hear Jesus is telling this to us, we should be able to identify which brother we probably are. And sometimes in life, we may be living that reckless life and just pursuing whatever's gonna make us happy. Uh, and it doesn't, it could be all kinds of things where we're like, I don't need God. I don't need anything but myself and my identity and my pursuits and my virtues and whatever. That's gonna fulfill me. And it's just reckless living. Or we might be the self-righteous person where we feel like we can earn our way back to uh, the Father's favor by keeping rules and, and earning our inheritance, right? By, by being religious, by being moral, by being uh, hard workers in our jobs and raising up, you know, respectful children and good kids and, and all these things that we have to, but we have to stand when we're hearing this story that we are one of them and that means we are all lost. Both of the brothers in this story were equally lost. Why? Because each of them cared only about the father's riches and not about the father. The younger brother was just brash enough to go and tell him it to his face while the older brother didn't say it until the little brother came back home. So number one, we're all lost. Number two, so we have to repent of our sins and our righteousness. We have to repent of our sins and our righteousness. It's obvious when you are confronted with the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus and you read a story like this and how the Father has so much compassion for those who, who wander off, of course, if we've lived just these immoral, reckless lives, we know we need to ask God to forgive us of those sins and to be made right before Him. That's obvious. 
when you are confronted with these incredible truths. But what's not as obvious and what's harder to see is that like the older brother, we need to repent of our righteousness, of our own attempts to try to earn our way to heaven. That's what the Bible talks about as our righteousness is like sinful rags. They're, they're disgusting in the sight of God because we think we can build our way up to heaven and that we don't need him. And so when we hear this story, we got to go, Jesus, re- forgive me. I repent of my reckless, sinful living, but also, God, I repent, I repent of, my, of my righteousness, even my good deeds. Why? Because my motivation for those good deeds is probably pretty wrong. Super important. And then the third thing, and I think this is really the fascinating one as we read the story, is that we need someone to come find us and bring us home. We need someone to come find us and bring us home. You know, at the beginning of Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells two little parables. And they're really the, have the exact same moral of the story as this longer one that he tells. And the first one is about a shepherd and having sheep. And he says, hey, if you have 100 sheep and one of them uh, goes astray, everybody's going to leave the 99 to try to go find the lost one until he finds it. And when he does, he's going to rejoice. And then he says, and if anybody has 10 coins and they lose one of them, they're going to search their house up and down. They're going to look under every single cushion to be able to find that one lost coin. And when they do find it, they're going to celebrate. And they're going to tell everybody about how the, the fact that they found their lost coin. And so he, he tells those two stories. And then he jumps into this parable about these, this father and these two sons. And so what's interesting about this, and it's a question. Think about this for a moment. Nobody goes to search for the lost son in this story. Why? Why does nobody in this story, like the first two, go and search out the son which was lost? It's very clear. It's said numerous times by the father that my son was once lost. He was dead, but now he's been found and he's alive again. Why did nobody go seek him out? And then the next question I would ask is this. Well, whose responsibility was it? Whose is it? And I don't think it takes much of a stretch when we just think about life that we'd go, well, it's the older brother's responsibility. Big bro is supposed to go to his dad and say, hey, I know my brother has lost his way. I know he's, he's disrespecting you. He's brought shame to your, to your name and to our family and he's wandered off. Don't worry, dad. I'm going to go find him. I'm going to get him. And I'm going to bring him back and we're going to celebrate when we do, when we get home, because everything will be made right. But that's not what happens. And I think what Jesus is doing here is that he is setting up for, in our hearts something that just, it just makes us wonder and, and, and feel the need and understand in our hearts that we're, why did nobody come and search for him? Why did nobody go to him? And the reason why the older brother doesn't is because, guess what? He preferred that his brother would stay lost. It was more beneficial to him if little bro never came back. Why? Because just like his father told him when his father went out to him when he was angry, he said, all that is mine is yours. Meaning everything that I have when I die, it all goes to you. Your little brother's already gotten his inheritance. 
And so he is mad when he comes home because that means the money that and the inheritance that should have been for him is being wasted once again on his little brother, this fatted calf for him. It didn't make any sense. And he was angry about it. And so he doesn't go and search for him. Why? Because he wants to ensure that as much of his inheritance as he can can be preserved so that when his dad dies, there would be great wealth, great prosperity. And he knows if he comes home, dad's going to spoil him. Dad's going to show love to him. And he can't comprehend that being possible. So he doesn't go and search for him. But the good news is this. And I hope you could see this coming. And the good news is that Jesus is our true older brother who changes us from being lost to found. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus, he left heaven and he came to earth and he, and he put on flesh and he humbled himself. And even though he should have been served by all and, and, he, and he could have had the glory of the Father in heaven here on earth, instead, he left that all behind. He was willing to be put to shame. Why? So that he might be able to find us in our lostness, whether it would be in our reckless living or our self-righteousness. And that he would go and he would die on a cross so that... Through his death and resurrection, he would make it possible for us to be reconciled and be brought back home and be made alive and move, be changed from being lost to being found. Jesus was willing to give up everything for you. He was willing to give up everything for me. Why? Because while we were still sinners, he loved us and he died for us. That's the truth. Jesus is the true older brother. So when you think about this story and you ask yourself, man, why didn't anybody go? Listen, somebody has gone. Somebody has searched for you. And you don't have to look for the hope of it in the future. If you find yourself right now and you're like, man, I am in the middle of chaos. I am living for whatever. Uh, I, I'm living for the day, for the thing. Or man, I just feel really good about my life right now and my job and my kids. But you don't need Jesus. You don't need God. Listen. You need him and he's come for you and he's given his life for you. And there's nothing that we can do except for turn from ourselves and turn from our sins and turn to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me. I believe in you. I believe you sent your son, my, who's meant to be my older brother so that I could be forgiven of my sins. I could be made alive again and I could go from being lost to found. So today, as you sit at home and you think about the story of these prodigal sons, my hope is this, is that you would ask God to change you. But you gotta start with the question of what's keeping me from changing? What is keeping you from changing? What is that barrier? What's that thing? What's holding you back? Whatever it is today, let me just encourage you. Release it. Let it go. Don't cling to it anymore. Whatever it might be, it can't satisfy your soul. No amount of money, no amount of moral living, no amount of, of promise and prosperity and stature, or whatever it is you think that's going to fulfill you, it won't make you happy. 
eventually you're going to come crashing down just like this younger brother or just like this older brother and come face to face with a father who wants to save you. But it's up to you to whether or not you're going to believe and trust him. So I just want to pray right now. If God's done something in your heart to show you which brother you are, and maybe you're a combination of both, the good news is this. He's patient, he's kind, and he's loving. And if you will put your faith and your trust in him today, he is faithful to save. It's a desire that none should be lost, but that everyone should come to the knowledge of salvation that is found in him. So Lord, right now I just pray for every person that is hearing your word being preached this morning. Pray they'd open up their hearts. Pray they let go of whatever's in their hands and that they would turn it all over to you at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, I'm believing in you that you would save me and that you would change me from being lost to found. God, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.